Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So I was asked uh, by somebody to say a little bit about about the course. Um, and anybody here on that uh, day long at the end of January uh, about the course? Just yeah, it's okay, a few. You know, I've gone. Uh, I was going to. I'm not sure what to talk. What talk to give? I was going to give another another talk, but I could give a talk about the essence of the of the. Of the course in the book on awakening joy. Yeah. Yeah. Should I do that? Yeah. So those those who've who've heard me give this rap before, that'll be. You'd have to stay with a beginner's mind, right? <laughs> Is that okay? Hmm. All right. Hold on. Let me just switch. Um, uh, oh, yeah. All right, now we can, we can really get political here. Uh, I was going to talk about um, learning to open to experience, um, which would include uh, forgiveness and uh, patience and um, touch a little bit on, on gratitude from the Course. I, I would touch on gratitude on, on either way. Let's have the joy. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's in need of joy. Okay. My cat died today. Oh, I'm sorry. Her cat died today. How old? Nineteen. Oh, Nineteen. Wow. wow, that's a long relationship. Mm, okay. So part of the essence of of this is uh, is not to just put a smiley smile on your face and say, oh, everything is wonderful, a part of the, the approach and the, the principles are uh, being with what's here and just uh, letting yourself feel everything that you need to feel and holding it in a space of um, a wider perspective, particularly when there's a loss of, of a loved one, to also have a which I'm sure you, you do, but to, to keep in mind the gratitude and the appreciation for all the time that you spent with her, was it? What was her name? Katmandu. Katman, Katmandu was her cat. Uh, what, what's... But her grandchild... Her grandchild changed the name to Kitsi, the Yiddish Kitzel, Kitzel the Yiddish name for for cat. So, um, okay. So it's it, when you're going through a hard a hard time, it's to have a, a wider perspective and know that uh, you need to honor all the feelings, and you will probably. Smile again and laugh again, and and your cat is 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 part of what's opened your heart and can uh, and has been an enriched part of your life. So, my sympathies to you. I write in the book about losing my dog in the uh, in the chapter on um, finding joy in difficult times, and I can really relate that. You know, that was that was a big one for me. It, it's uh, when when you're feeling so connected to a being that you just get down on the floor and bury your head in in his or her body and you can smell them and that intimate. It's it's a big loss. So uh, my my heart goes to you. So. 
so, okay. Um, I'll share a bit about how I got into this stuff. Um, Awakening Joy. This is the book, Awakening Joy, 10 Steps That Will Put You on the Road to Real Happiness uh, that I wrote with my dear friend Shoshana Alexander also. Jack wrote the foreword. Ramdas did the preface. And uh, um, I think it's okay. I think it's a pretty good book. <laughs> When I uh, first got into spiritual practice, this is in the summer of 1974. Actually, uh, it was before then, when I first uh, read the book Be Here Now, and uh, that changed my life. How many people have read Be Here Now? Right. Oh, yeah. And then I went out to Naropa uh, Institute the first summer in, uh, that it was happening. It's now Naropa Institute uh, University. And my son, goes to, who's 23, goes to Naropa. So it's kind of full circle. Um, but I went out there. I had read Be Here Now and carried it around like a Bible for a few years. And Ramdas was there that first summer. And I asked him, uh, among other things, uh, about meditation and he pointed me he said go check this guy Goldstein out and it's Joseph Goldstein who's my my teacher and uh, after judging the package for about 10 minutes because he didn't look particularly holy and grand and long flowing hair and he sounded like he was from Brooklyn and I was from Queens and uh, he was just a couple of years older than me and I thought so this is the great meditation teacher that Ramdas is asking me to, to be with. That was for about 10 minutes. And then I uh, listened to what he was saying, and not only what, but the energy that, was, that he was sharing. And it was clear that he knew something that I wanted to know. There was something so um, comfortable and relaxed and just being who he was, and besides, he was saying it's possible to uh, not be run by your neurotic thoughts, which had never occurred to me before. <laughs> and he, the way he said it, he said, this is true. This is possible. And I was in a lot of suffering, uh, internal suffering, and I just believed him and went for it. And I had what was... Um, a called a, a honeymoon period, a long honeymoon period, where I just fell in love with the practice and did a lot of retreats for a number of years. I should say, before I, before I uh, got into, uh, there was one snag that first summer where I, I debated whether or not I could really give myself over to this, uh, because I'm of, I have a lot of, I, there's a uh, an intensity. I have an intensity and a passion about things. And um, uh, that one summer, that, uh, after a few weeks, I was saying, this is so incredible. But I came to the class, and I was wearing my New York Knicks T-shirt. And I was uh, a season ticket holder to the New York Knicks. This is their glory years with Walt Frazier and... Bill Bradley and Dave DeBusher and Willis Reed, if you know that, that era. Earl the Pearl was my favorite player, uh, Earl the Pearl Monroe. But there I was meditating. This is just so maybe something you could relate to. Uh, and I realized, oh, I'm wearing my Knicks shirt. And all of a sudden, the meditation, I started thinking about all the ecstatic moments I had had in Madison Square Garden. Just so I'd say like, oh, at least four or five out of the, my top peak, ten peak experiences I, I, at that point were in Madison Square Garden. And then I was kind of getting into it, and then all, all of a sudden I realized, oh, we're meditating. That's what we're supposed to be doing here. And the... The juxtaposition from that intense passion to being very spiritual um, kind of threw me, and it was the first time I, I mustered up the courage to go up to uh, to Joseph after the class, and I said, "Excuse me, uh, I want to speak to you." He said, "Yes," and I said, um, uh, "Listen, um, 
I, I've got something to ask. Uh, yeah. I'm a season ticket holder to the New York Knicks. <laughs> Am I going to go, uh, go to Madison Square Garden and watch the game and say, nice shot, Frazier. Good move, Havlicek. Nice pass there. Because I'm not ready to sign up for it if this is where it's leading. You know? And he said, don't worry. You'll be enthusiastic as you... Uh, as you are now, you'll probably just get over a loss sooner. I said, okay, I'm going for it. Because yeah. um, I didn't want to lose my passion or my love of life. As much suffering as I had, I, there was also the, the highs that I craved, I can say. Anyway, as I really went for it, I had, a, uh, as I say, a long honeymoon period where I just fell in love with the practice. It was my salvation. And many things that um, I had wished for and hoped for, uh, I uh, finally saw were possible, that there's some peace inside, that there's a way to hold our challenges with, uh, with equanimity, that there's a kind of well-being that's not dependent on getting stuff that, uh, uh, that's outside. And that lasted for a number of years. At some point, I became very serious about practice, dead serious about my practice. And in, this is not something that's so foreign to um, practitioners, sometimes you can be so uh, fervent about it and then you hear thoughts about, uh, about the Buddhist path, getting off the wheel. I practiced with one great Burmese teacher who uh, ended each evening of a three-month retreat saying, uh, may you speedily... Um, escape from the, the woes of this world and, uh, and realize the, the bliss of Nibbana. Somewhere in my mind, that and other messages um, were distorted in thinking, get out of here as fast as you can. And it's not spiritual or Buddhist to have fun and to enjoy life. Now, this is not what was being said, but this was somehow a, a, a subtle belief inside that I started to take on. And in fact, um, I wasn't alone in this. Uh, this is a quote from Ajahn Sumedho, who's a, one of the most respected, um, the most respected uh, monastic in Theravadan Buddhism. He's a Westerner and has a number of different... Um, monasteries, Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Pasano, who, who teach here, uh, at, and they're up at Abhayagiri there in that uh, monastic tradition. Sumedho says, Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the selfless nature of reality, Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have true insight, then you find you enjoy delight and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. They delight us. In them we find joy. <clears throat> so, I... After a while uh, of going through this kind of somber period, I uh, 
uh, woke up and reclaimed my natural joy. And when I did, and I started to question the, the subtle assumptions I was having in my, my mind, in my, my heart, I wanted to take a good look and see what exactly the Buddha did say about happiness. Because he was called the happy one. And he said, go for the highest happiness and you'll experience all the other ones along the way. And this is a, um, a good thing to experience the happinesses of life. The key, though, is to know where happiness really lies. Joy is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. Suffering is not a factor of enlightenment. Joy is one of the four divine abodes. If you go up to the the uh, buildings up on the other side of the of the um, of the gate where the, the retreat center is, uh, where the uh, residential retreats are. There's metta, loving kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, and upekka, equanimity. Joy is one of the divine abodes. It's one of the uh, the uh, high states of concentration, and there's all kinds of um, shades and flavors of well-being that are spoken of in the teachings, from gladness to rapture to uh, to bliss to contentment to peace, many many shades of well-being. And when I say joy, this is what I'm I'm talking about: all the different flavors of well-being that are there. And as I looked at the teachings. Uh, there were, I saw three teachings that really struck me as keys to developing or uncovering the well-being and the joy that's right in here for us. Because as the Buddha said, and I, I have come to see this for myself, the happiness and the peace and the joy that we're looking for isn't out there. It's right inside. We just have to create the conditions that allow it to be experienced and shine through. And we see this, you don't have to be a, a Dharma practitioner to, uh, to believe this. You see a baby, when a baby is fed and their diapers are changed and they receive minimal amount of, of love, what do they do? They squeal with delight. Wow, isn't life wonderful? And we love being around babies because it reminds us of that place that we've all experienced. The same with adults as well. If you uh, go to a neuroscience lab and, uh, and they, they hook up the brain to, with electrodes and to the machines, if that person has um, uh, a mind that's not stressed... That's a big one right there. That's, that's, that is basically uh, taking, having its physical needs met and is in a state of non-stress. There's a, an inherent coherence, and it shows up as um, calm, creative, contented, uh, conscious, conscious, and caring. It's this just kind of like humming along. Mm. So it's not that we have to manufacture any of this. It's just creating the conditions that allow that to shine through. And the three principles that um, when I looked at could be utilized for anyone, whether or not they're a Dharma practitioner, um, to uh, awaken that feeling of well-being or awaken joy, uh, I these that struck me, I put them into a um, into a package, into an accessible uh, way to develop over time this or to uncover this uh, well-being that's a part of who we are. And the, the course, which is now in its 
fourth month, by the way, it's a 10-month course, uh, and you can still sign up for it. You can do it online. Many people do it online, and uh, you just would go either Google Awakening Joy or uh, go to awakeningjoy.info, uh, and you can, and you can, there's a suggested donation, but you can offer whatever you want to, to join, and uh, um, so that's, that's the piece around, around the course. Um, so here's the three principles that then after doing the course and uh, over a number of years, and it seemed to be very helpful for a lot of people, um, I wrote this book uh, that's based on the course. First principle, the Buddha's teaching on wholesome states, on, on wise effort, actually, that points to wholesome states. Wise effort, you've probably heard of wise effort or right effort, which often is translated or is meant to mean, you know, you want to be, have, make the effort to be mindful and not get too tight, not get too lax, but just the right amount of effort. That's usually how it's thought of. But actually, the definition of wise, of wise or right effort is, has four components. Guarding, two have to do with unwholesome states, which are states that lead to contraction and suffering. Guarding against the unwholesome states, and when they arise, to um, work with them and overcome them so that they don't sweep you away. States like anger and fear and um, uh, jealousy and uh, wanting, obsession, you know those, right? They, they create this kind of tension or contraction and they are states of suffering. Then there are two aspects of wise effort that have to do with wholesome states. That is developing wholesome states just like you might do um, a loving-kindness practice, or mindfulness is a wholesome state, or a generosity practice, or a compassion practice. Those states that open us up, that are expansive in the heart and the mind. So developing the wholesome states, and when they're here, the fourth aspect of wise effort is to maintain and increase wholesome states when they arise. Which is kind of interesting. You might say, well, I thought we're not supposed to get attached to to something. And here's the caveat. When there's a wholesome state, when you're feeling joy or whatever, contentment, if you say, ooh, this is so good, bring it on, I want more, as soon as you've done that, you've cut off the wholesome state. So it's a trick to trying to maintaining and increasing the wholesome state without the grasping mind, because that just you've just turned to an unwholesome state. And we'll get to this. This is the, the heart of the, the course. But that principle to develop wholesome states and maintain and increase them when they arise. The the subtitle of the book is Awakening Joy, 10 Steps That Will Put You on the Road to Real Happiness. And the 10 steps are 10 different wholesome states that, when cultivated, allow that natural well-being to shine through. So that's the first. Second principle, along with a wholesome state, there is a gladness that one feels when you're in the middle of a random act of kindness. It feels good, doesn't it? It's just something spontaneously moving through you without any hook. You just are moved to do that. It feels really good. That gladness, that uplift that naturally accompanies a wholesome state, the Buddha called in one lesser-known discourse, an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. 
you know, you can feel kind of bummed out and really contracted or things aren't going well, and somebody smiles at you or says, hi, I'm so glad you're in my life, or I really appreciate that. And all of a sudden, the previous eight hours just kind of evaporates. Oh, that's so nice, you know. That uplift, that feeling of gladness, is an antidote to ill will and hostility. And he says in the same discourse that the gladness connected with a wholesome, the wholesome state um, opens the heart when gains inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the, in the truth. And he says, pay attention to that gladness. And he gives the example, if you are mm, in the middle of a generous act in this one discourse, he says, if you're in the middle of a generous act, you, he suggests you think to yourself, I'm being generous now. He says, thinking I am generous, one gladdens the heart, gains inspiration, the meaning, etc., etc. He's not saying, hey, I hope everybody sees how generous I am, you know. Check it out. Do you know, I'm a very generous person. You know, how cool. That's missing the point. What he's saying is, feel how good for that impulse of generosity to move through you, all on its own, without taking credit, without taking ownership of it, just letting yourself feel the gladness that accompanies it. Is this, are you with me? Does that make sense? Um, and then... The third principle, so the first is to cultivate and increase wholesome states. The second is to notice the gladness that arises with them. Oh, I'll just put one little, uh, uh, insert something before I move on to the third, around neuroscience that proves this. Uh, And the book, by the way, is filled with neuroscience that kind of uh, uh, corroborates or affirms the, the principles. Uh, that there is this idea of taking in the good. One of my somebody who's gonna who's here and teaches at Spirit Rock, a dear friend Rick Hansen, who wrote a book Buddha's Brain, which has become very popular around neuroscience and and these teachings. Uh, he's a speaker at one at each class has a, a guest speaker in the in the course. And a couple of months ago, he was at the uh, at the course uh, in Berkeley, and. Uh, that you'd see online, um, that, uh, and he said, if you take in the good and really focus on it, stay with it for 30 seconds when you're feeling a feeling of well-being, if you stay with it for 30 seconds, do this six times a day, I know, that's three minutes. That's a lot. But if you do it six times a day for 30 seconds over a two-week period, you will notice a dramatic shift in your general level of well-being. It starts to set up neural pathways, and you you, you become more and more adept at doing that. And that's... Uh, It was interesting to hear that little equation, but the basic practice of the Course is to experience a wholesome state and then be very present for it, not to miss it. To know, it's one thing to know you're feeling good, it's a whole other to feel what it's like to feel good and to not miss it. So that's the second principle to get in touch with the gladness that accompanies that wholesome state. And then the third principle is uh, from another teaching that says um, whatever the practitioner, this is the Buddha speaking, whatever the practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Can you argue with that? Whatever you frequently think and ponder upon, that becomes the inclination of your mind. If you 
frequently think and ponder upon how the world is just a mess and going down the tubes and everybody around is going to disappoint you and they're all jerks or whatever. If that's what you frequently think and ponder upon, you'll find ample evidence to confirm your hypothesis. And that's what you'll be looking out for. That's what you will see because we'll find what we look for. If you frequently think and ponder upon how amazing it is to be alive, how really underneath whatever trips people have going on, there's their longing for love or goodness and wanting that to shine through or just to feel safe and that there's a a, a goodness that can be accessed, which is what the Buddha said, that we all have... Buddha nature, or he didn't say we have Buddha nature, that we all are the Buddha, you know, that there's the Buddha right inside. Um, He didn't quite say it like that either, but that's the idea of uh, finding that, uh, that clarity that he found. That's why he taught, that everybody can see this. If you frequently think and ponder upon the goodness all around you, you will see that too. You'll find it. And it will dramatically shift the way you go through the world. So watch what you frequently think and ponder upon. And over time, as your, your mind habitually goes in a certain direction, you can go in either direction towards more well-being or more suffering. The choice is yours, nobody else's. This is very similar to the neuron, uh, neuroscience axiom first quoted by a guy named Donald Hebb about, I think, 60 years ago, that says, neurons that fire together, wire together. And we're now finding that the brain is, has a plasticity, that you can actually change the structure of the brain by your habits of mind. So that's why the course is over 10 months, because it takes some time to to change those those patterns. So now, given that, I'll share with you um, some of the uh, some principles and some exercises. The first thing is that it's important to see where uh, happiness is found. Think of something that brings you joy, maybe an activity or, or some, something, some experience that brings you joy. Okay, let me, uh, let me just get a few comments, one at a time, you could just shout out. Coming home. Coming home, okay, that's good. Riding a bike, yeah, beautiful, what else? What is it? Making music with friends. Writing. Writing, yeah. What else? Planting a garden. Planting a garden, gardening, yeah. What was it? Somebody else over here? Cooking. Cooking, okay. Beautiful. One last one. Walking your dog. Walking your dog, yeah. Mm, I know that. That almost always comes up, yeah. So being in nature, feeling the earth, being with friends having creativity move through you, writing or making music, being with friends. That's where happiness lies in these wholesome states. We are not usually given that message that that's where happiness lies. And I want to share with you the conditioning that we're up against. This is an ad given to me a number of years ago Uh, that I love, called The Gold Shivers. It's a two-page ad. Beautiful woman, draped in gold, very happy expression. And here's the ad. The Gold Shivers, that electric excitement, that thrilling warmth. Every new piece of gold jewelry ignites it once again. (laughs) Nothing makes you feel as good as gold. Second page, you can look at the woman. What is the real substance of a new piece of gold jewelry? Emotion, pure and powerful. 
From the first small shiver of excitement when a shimmering necklace of gold beads catches a woman's eye to the great shivers of delight when the coveted object actually becomes hers. (laughs) Among life's pleasures, count this deeply felt euphoria as unique. The only way to get the gold shivers is by getting the gold. (laughs) It's brilliant, isn't it? You might... Even if you didn't want gold, you probably wanted it by the end of, of that ad. you know, Because we are very conditioned. That's why these companies pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to say, drink Coca-Cola. You've seen how many Coca-Cola ads? You think one more ad is going to say, oh yeah, I really do want Coca-Cola. It's because that repetitive message gets through. Coca-Cola is going to do it. Then I'll get the girl and I'll be so happy and because mm, it's all wired up in our brain. And the average American, according to a study done a number of years ago, which I think is far conservative now with Internet being plugged in everywhere, uh, the average American gets, uh, in that study, gets 3,000 messages like this Every day. I think it's much more. You just stay on the internet for, you know, 10 minutes or you walk down a street and see all the billboards and all all that, you know. Unless you're at Spirit Rock doing a retreat up there when the one big hit of craving is what's for lunch, right? (laughs) Other than that, it's mostly what's going to do it for me. And when people said what they... What they loved, walking the dog or making music or uh, gardening, none of those had anything to do with the gold shivers. They were free. My God, how is this culture going to run on free joy, right? (laughs) So that's the first Thing, to get in touch with where happiness really lies, and it lies in these wholesome states. And um, I'm not going to have, uh, we certainly aren't going to get through uh, the 10 months in the time we have left, but uh, I'm just wondering how many of these to do. I'll just mention, maybe I'll just mention uh, one or two, and then uh, if there's time, we can take some questions. Mm. It starts with the intention to place happiness in the center of your life. Just like in the teachings, everything starts with intention. The Buddha has this this line, uh, intending, by intending we create karma. Through intending, uh, we create karma through body, speech, and mind. Or as a Tibetan saying goes, everything starts, uh, everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. Where you're coming from will determine where you end up. And most people, although everybody wants to be happy, most people don't put happiness in the center of their their life. Thinking, mm, when I'm, when I get rich, then I'll be happy. When I become successful, then I'll be happy. When I meet the right partner, then I'll be happy. And you meet the right person, you fall in love, and for 18 months while the dopamine is shooting out, you're saying, yeah, I found lasting happiness. And then it wears off and it's, oh, who's this person that I'm with now? And I definitely believe in relationships. I've been with my my wife for 30 years. But it's work, you know. It's not all ecstatic joy. It's very much worth it, but there's the realization that uh, it's not just uh, eternal happiness. So this is the first thing, to have the intention, not to postpone your happiness, but to put it right in the center and simply know that through that intention, everything can change. I won't 
I won't get into it now. There's some there's exercises throughout the book to get in touch with your intention, but I'll, I'll share with you a story of a radical change that has affected countless people. Uh, you might be familiar with positive psychology. You know the positive psychology movement of uh, that's been oh 15 years or so, 15 or 20 years that this fellow Martin Seligman. Um, uh, started when he was president of the American Psychological Association. And this is how, and he wrote a book called Authentic Happiness, which is really the, uh, the foundation for the movement. And he describes in this uh, book how, um, how this whole idea of positive psychology started. I, I was a psych major, and, we, um, when, and I loved uh, studying abnormal psych. That was the favorite class and you read the abnormal psych textbook and you're reading one chapter and you say oh yeah that's me and then you read the next oh yeah that's me too there's the what the medical student syndrome where you have all the 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 diseases and you have the pathology when you're looking for it right and oh yeah that's me too well he came up with the radical idea oh how about wellness how about looking for that and once people started looking for that uh, you see that it can happen anywhere. Well, this is how positive psychology started. The moment took place in my garden while I was weeding with my five-year-old daughter, Nikki. I have to confess that even though I write books about children, I'm really not all that good with them. I'm goal-oriented and time-urgent, and when I'm weeding in the garden, I'm actually trying to get the weeding done. Nikki, however, was throwing weeds into the air, singing and dancing around. I yelled at her. She walked away, came back, and said, Daddy, I want to talk to you. <laughs> yes, Nikki, I said. Daddy, she said, do you remember before my fifth birthday, from the time I was three to the time I was five, I was a whiner. I whined every day. When I turned five, I decided not to whine anymore. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. And if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. <laughs> this was, for me, an epiphany. Nothing less. Nikki hit the nail right on the head. I was a grouch. I'd spent 50 years mostly enduring wet weather in my soul and the last 10 being a nimbus cloud in a household full of sunshine. Any good fortune I had was probably not due to my grumpiness, but in spite of it. In that moment, I resolved to change. That was the beginning of the positive psychology movement. That was because he had the intention to change. And if you have the intention to change, you can change a lifetime of habits. Sometimes radically fast, sometimes you get the idea of where you want to head and you keep on working, working at it. Just like in the Eightfold Path, if you look at uh, that, the uh, carousel wheel, the, the, uh, the wheel as you go up the gate, uh, after wise understanding comes wise intention, where you see where happiness lies and then you say, okay, I'm going for it. Everything starts with that. Once you decide to place happiness at the center of your life, the next key step is the tool of mindfulness, being present for your life, which the Buddha said in the discourse that all Buddhist meditation is based on, the Satipatthana Sutta, he said there is a most wonderful, most direct way for overcoming sorrow, lamentation, ending grief and despair, and pain and anxiety, and realizing the highest happiness. That is the establishment of mindfulness. And then he goes on to say all the various ways that one can be mindful, which is what we practice here in this room and up in an intensive way up, uh, up the hill. Mindfulness is the key to happiness and well-being for a f couple of reasons. One is that 
when you are mindful, you are weakening all the unwholesome states and strengthening all the wholesome states. It is the unique factor, mental factor. In Buddhist psychology, there's 52 mental factors. It's a kind of deck that you're dealt, you know. Um, Sometimes I think, well, not everybody has a full deck, but it's not so. (laughs) We all have a full deck, and we have wholesome and unwholesome, right? And of all those mental factors, mindfulness weakens the unwholesome states and factors like greed and hatred and confusion, um, jealousy and fear and all of those. And it strengthens all the wholesome states, kindness, generosity, clarity, wisdom, equanimity. So that's one very potent capacity for mindfulness. A second potent capacity is that when you are feeling well-being, when you are mindful, it strengthens that wholesome state. That's how you maintain and increase the wholesome state, just by being present for it and giving it attention. Um, hmm. I'll read to you a passage that I love about mindfulness from the, from the book. As long as I'm giving this talk, I should probably read a couple of things from it. From somebody who probably many of you know and love. Uh, and that is um, Sylvia Borstein, who was a, a guest at the course. She's a guest each year at the course. At one Awakening Joy class, meditation teacher Sylvia Borstein told a story about how becoming aware of what she was thinking helped reframe an experience. One evening when she was staying in New York City, She'd arranged to meet a friend for a theater performance and decided to take a bus to get there. As the bus crept along through the heavy traffic, Sylvia started worrying. I'm going to be late. I'll miss the curtain. My friend will worry about what happened to me. I shouldn't have taken the bus. The subway would have been so much faster. Figuring she could walk faster than the bus was going, Sylvia got off. And of course, as I'm walking, the bus passes me by. And now I'm thinking I should have taken a cab. (laughs) Sylvia's been meditating for years, but she's also, by her own admission, been fretting for years. So it was an easy reaction to fall into. Continuing her story, she describes running down Broadway in high heels with a cold wind whipping around her. And then, all of a sudden, I have the thought, what am I doing? Oh, I'm grumbling. That's a moment of mindfulness. Up until then, I was caught up in a habit-driven narrative, an editorial comment about what was happening. The moment at which the mind says, Sylvia, you're grumbling. The lens switches, and suddenly the truth of that moment is, I'm a 71-year-old woman running down Broadway in the middle of winter in high heels. That is far out. That's an extremely fortunate thing to be able to do. It changed everything. I felt proud, and I actually hoped a lot of people saw me. That's how mindfulness works. It gets you out of your story and saying, oh, what's going on here? That's where it can cut the spin in the mind and the unwholesome feeling and state that that comes along with that and can open you to a different perspective. And you're awake. You're present for your life. Mindfulness is the underpinning of all the other uh, steps and wholesome states because when you're experiencing them, then you pay attention to them and you see just the power of that well-being. It's like it puts the the lens, uh, it puts, shines awareness on that well-being. And I'll just mention one, one last uh, one uh, to close the talk, and that's the third step of gratitude. Uh, I just want to, uh, as a, as a par- parenthetically, say that 
um, there are steps like finding joy in difficult times, as we were talking about. That's an essential one. That's, the, that's after you can open up with gratitude, then you have the space to work with all the hard stuff in life. Um, living a life of integrity, alignment with your values, learning to love yourself, a key, and then loving others, and it goes on from there. But gratitude is one uh, wholesome state that's very accessible uh, that we can practice very simply so you get a, a taste of how you can use this, whether or not you do the course or read the book, but how you can use it in your daily life by simply paying attention to when you feel appreciation or gratitude. And uh, I encourage people to do a gratitude practice, uh, whether it's emailing a friend or writing something down regularly or just starting to notice um, the good in your life. Uh, and we'll just, I'll take you through a short gratitude uh, exercise. Right now, you can close your eyes and... Think of something or someone that you're grateful for or grateful to. It could be a circumstance that you're blessed with or somebody who's really there for you who has enriched your life. And have an image of them or of that situation. So you're connected with it. You feel a picture. You feel it as you picture it. Picture them. And then for a moment, just silently, give a a sincere thank you from your heart to that person or to life. Thank you. Let yourself feel it. And as you're feeling it, let your awareness just really relax into it, that feeling of a grateful heart. You don't have to do anything other than just open to it. Thank you. And take a breath. We'll do one more. Think of somebody else that you feel grateful for or something you're grateful for to life or have an image and then say thank you, a sincere thank you. And then just mindfully be aware of that, the landscape of gratitude, just resting in it. You don't have to do anything special. Just don't miss it. Could you feel it? It is very simple. But if you have your radar out for all the things there are to be grateful for in life. This is not about pretending everything is wonderful, but the more you can see all the good inside and around you, the more that container can hold all the hard stuff. Not to miss it. Whatever you frequently think and ponder upon becomes the inclination of mind. Now, lest you think that you are not, you've practiced another way so much that uh, this might not come easily. Uh, I'll close with a story, my favorite story in the book, um, about my mother, who um, is now 91 and a half, 
as she'll tell you. And actually, this story is on, uh, is on the internet. If you don't have the book, you can read this excerpt. It's on Huffington Post, uh, Frame It With Gratitude. But also, you can see my mother. There's a YouTube that's going around because she came to the, the, the Joy Course uh, recently, and she's very funny. And if you go to YouTube and go to Confessions of a Jewish Mother, How My Son Ruined My Life, <laughs> you'll, you'll see the follow-up to this. Or if you just remember Confessions of a Jewish Mother, there are now, I think today it was like up to... Uh, 18,000 views in, in, in the last couple of weeks. Anyway, this is what, the, what that was based on. I was down at uh, visiting her in Los Angeles, uh, and uh, I was, uh, my sister who lives near her was away for a few weeks, and I went down and spent a, a week with her. And I was writing the book and writing about gratitude, and all, all, I had all this research on the health benefits of gratitude. It builds your immune system and it, you exercise more and you have better relationships. There's a whole lot of this issue from Greater Good Journal on, and the issue is on gratitude. And as I shared it with her, um, she agreed, that's really impressive. I said, isn't that cool, Mom? You know, wouldn't that be great if you know, we could have more gratitude? She's somebody who has been seeing the glass half empty for her whole life. That is, she's, we have a great relationship, but she uh, has a tendency to see what's wrong and to complain by her own admission and to complain and to worry. And she says if she doesn't have anything to worry about, that's, that's when she really gets worried. Right? <laughs> So I said, wouldn't it be great if you got into gratitude? She said, I know my life is very blessed, but you know I've been doing it this way for a long time, and I don't think I can change. And I said, if you could change, would you? She said, yeah, if I could, I would, but you know, I don't think so. And I said, okay, how about we play a game, Mom? Every time you say a complaint, like, oh, it's so cold here in Marina Del Rey, you know? Um, <laughs> I just say, and, and you say, and my life is very blessed. And she said, okay, let's do it. She's a gamer like that. She's got some, a lot of spunk in Moxie. And we had this incredible week. I had so many opportunities <laughs> as the complaints just rolled off her tongue. And she, you know, she'd say, oh, this is, and, oh yeah, and my life is very blessed. And we laughed through the week, and miraculously, it took hold. And I called her a lot those first few days that I that I came uh, came back. And a friend kept up the, uh, uh, the 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 exercise with her at home. And uh, then I uh, my sister my sister came home a few weeks later, and as she was my mom was keeping on doing this thing, and my life is very blessed. Just kept on rolling off her tongue. My sister said, said to me, what did you do to mom? <laughs> she wasn't particularly thrilled because she sees that way too, but she's gotten into it since. <laughs> anyway, seven months afterwards, my mom um, wrote me a poem. It was my birthday, and we always exchange poems on holidays and, and birthdays. And this is one that was the keeper. Mm-hmm. She was losing her eyesight at the time to macular degeneration, which later they were able to reverse. She has the kind that could could be reversed, although she's losing it a little bit now again. But anyway, she didn't know that that she could see again when she wrote this. And as part of the poem, she says, 90 is just fine with me. I no longer rant and rave about where the world is heading and my exclusive job to save. I wallow in contentment and know that I am blessed, awakening to the joy of living at its best. I'm happier than I've ever been and truly mean each word. The thoughts that cause the worries now all seem so absurd. Though my eyesight has been dimmed, I see clearer than before. The glass is not half empty. It's overflowing, to be sure. 
if my mom can change <laughs> at 89, anyone can change. All it takes is practice, inclining your mind towards well-being, having a good support system, and uh, looking for the good, starting with that intention. So uh, I hope that whatever you do, whether you, you know, check out the book or whatever, Confessions of a Jewish Mother, go to YouTube, um, just keep on looking for the good inside you, around you, and awaken that joy that's there, wanting to come out, that well-being that's wanting to come out. And as you do, it's a gift to everybody you know because it's contagious. Just like anxiety and frustration and despair can be contagious, our well-being and our contentment and our happiness is contagious. So it's a great gift that you give to everyone as well. So thank you for your attention and share your goodness and peace and joy. Mm. Oh, am I supposed to read a... uh, Yeah. Next month... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.